Welcome to the study of God's Word with pastor and author Ed Taylor, recorded live from Calvary Chapel in Aurora, Colorado. To learn more about the many resources available through Abounding Grace Media, visit us online at calvaryaurora.org or download our free app on all platforms. And now, here's Pastor Ed to take us into our study. Amen. Amen. Would you take your Bibles and open them, please, to two places, Hebrews chapter 11 Hebrews chapter 11 and Exodus chapter 12. In a Bible study that I've entitled, By Faith, Moses Applied the Blood. And it could very well easily be titled, By Faith, Israel Applied the Blood. But the focus is on Moses here in our verse-by-verse study in Hebrews. We're in one of the most exciting chapters in all the Bible. What's known as the Hall of Faith. Not the Hall of Failure, but the Hall of Faith. And this section of the Hall of Faith surrounds Moses and his glorious faith that was in him and around him and came through him. Moses' life started out in a miraculous way. There was an order given to kill all the baby boys. Far worse than abortion, this was infanticide. And remember, the midwives got involved, and Moses' life was spared. And they, in order to try to save his life, they put him in a little ark with the, in the area, the reeds of the Nile, to try to save his life. Pharaoh's daughter comes, sees the, his, her court, sees the little baby, and, and calls for someone to take care of it. And then Moses' sister is there, and was like, man, he gets to be raised by his mom for the first five years of his life until he was weaned. And God just miraculous one after another after another. God can do the same thing in your life. That he can work in the miraculous, the unexplainable. You, you see one thing, God sees another. And we'll remember, we remember today the miraculous work of God around Moses. After about five years, he spends the next 35 years in the court of Pharaoh. And according to Josephus, we learned, because there was no heir, Moses was considered the heir to the throne. He was going to take it all. He was going to be the next leader after Pharaoh. But we remember, we learned last time in verse 24, by faith Moses, this is Hebrews 11, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He rejected all that Egypt had to offer him. And notice, instead, he chose to, rather, to suffer affliction. And we asked the question last, who in their right mind chooses affliction when the whole world is offered to them? And we learned it's the man and woman of faith that chooses to identify with Jesus Christ in his affliction and the affliction of the people of God. He resisted the passing, it says in verse 25, pleasures of sin. He chose to suffer affliction then to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming, remember that word means to weigh in the balances. So he was looking at his life and he was weighing it all out. I could have everything a heart would ever want, all that Egypt had, I'd be in control, of all the luxury, all the opulence, all the money, or I can walk by faith in the God who saved me and loves me. And he esteemed, he weighed it, and he esteemed that the reproach of Christ was greater riches than all the treasures in Egypt because he looked to the reward. He had a spiritual outlook. He looked to the eternal. And we learned that in our section today in verse 27 where we left off. By faith, he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. 
By faith, he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood, lest he who destroyed the firstborn should touch them. Now Moses makes a decision. He has 35 years in Pharaoh's court, and then he senses the call of God upon his life. And you can see this in Exodus chapter 2. You can just jot it down. In Exodus chapter 2, we watch Moses see two people fighting, a Hebrew slave and an Egyptian. And the Bible says that he looks to the left and looks to the right, and he decides, I'm going to take this into my own hands. And he kills the Egyptian and tries to bury him. What the Bible doesn't say is he looking up. The Bible doesn't say he sought God's will. The Bible doesn't say that he he was told to do this. No, he just took it upon himself. It was his own wisdom, his own understanding, his own conclusion. Well, the next day, the Bible says, and I'm paraphrasing, the next day he sees two Hebrews fighting one another. And as he goes to break it up, they stop and go, what are you going to do? What are you going to do to us? Are you going to kill us like you killed the Egyptian? And he's like, oh, no. And the Bible tells us that he runs away to the backside of the desert, to Midian, which is present-day Saudi Arabia. And we learn a few things here in this second 40 years of Moses' life. He acts premature. He does the right thing, breaking up a fight, but he does it the wrong way. He, he acts in delivering a Hebrew, but he does it the wrong way. He's doing it in the power of his own flesh and his own strength and his own wisdom. And it's interesting to me to watch Moses here that in the power of his own flesh wasn't capable of even burying one Egyptian. Why? We well, see God wanted to bury the whole army of Egypt later on, and he does that in the Red Sea, but that was by his spirit. So often I think we settle for far less than what God has for us because we choose to do things in our own strength, in our own energy, in our own wisdom. And you always know it's a danger sign when you begin to think, I need to figure this out, or I need to control the situation. Instead of trusting in God, we know that this all happened by faith, and yet there are times in Moses' life when he didn't exercise faith, like you and me. It's important for us to offer any service to God in his spirit, by his power, according to his will, the way that he defines it. The Bible says in Zechariah chapter 4 that it's not by might and it's not by my power, but it's by his spirit, saith the Lord. In Galatians, jot it down, chapter 3, verse 3, Paul says to the Galatian believers, are you so foolish, having begun in the spirit, Are you now being made perfect by the flesh? This is right where the Hebrew believers are. They've started in the spirit, but because of the pressure, because of the difficulty, because of the warfare, because they are beginning to look backwards, they're they're beginning to wonder if they made the right decision. They're entering into the realm of backsliding. They've lost everything. They've lost family. They've lost friends. They've lost social status. They've lost the formalism of Judaism, they're beginning to look back and the temptation to finish in the flesh is there. And so Moses runs away after taking things into his own hands and he's in Midian for 40 years in a place of relative anonymity. And you know, that is a way that God does equip men and women. He he takes us away alone for a season of anonymity. He did that with Saul of Tarsus. He does that here with Moses Even Jesus spent many years 
in anonymity. We don't know what happened in those years that were not everything that happened in those years that preceded his adult ministry. There's that time of formation. And so many want the limelight today. So many people want to be known, but what God wants is for you to know him. And many times he'll take you alone. And even those, as I was praying, just feeling that sense that people are feeling alone. In that time of being alone, it's a time of pressing into the things of God. Where you may not be able to be surrounded by people right now, God is in the midst. He's asking you to draw near to him, and the Bible says he'll draw near to you. A greater time to dig deeper into the things of God. A time to develop your prayer life. So notice in verse 27, it says now, by faith, Moses forsook Egypt. Now again, let's go back to verse 24. You might have already marked this, but I want you to mark it if you haven't. This is the path of Moses. You ready? It says in verse 24, mark the word refused. That's where it starts in Moses' life. When given the opportunity to take everything, he refused. In verse 25, mark the word choosing. He goes from you refusing to choosing. And what did he choose? He chose to suffer and also to resist sin. Not only that, verse 26, circle the word esteeming. So now he's weighing everything. He's, made a cho- he, he's refused all the riches of Egypt, which led him to make a choice to choose affliction, which now leads him to esteem everything. As he comes to that place and go, was it really even worth it? Well, let me see. I'm going to esteem and weigh is the reproach of Christ. What is that valued against all the riches and treasures of Egypt? Well, he knows that it's more valuable because he looked to the reward, which brings us to the next word. Circle the word forsook forsook. It's a word that means to depart, to leave behind, but really in context here, it's the Greek word that means to disregard and to cease to care about. He forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured, again, as seeing him who is invisible. He's looking to the reward. He sees the invisible. Like Abraham before him, he's looking for the city whose builder and maker is God. He knows that this earth is not his home. He knows that the Egypt is not going to last forever, that the riches of Egypt don't compare to the eternal rewards of obeying God. Now, this forsaking Egypt... Sounds simple enough, but like many passages in the Bible, scholars and commentators like to argue and disagree about when this exactly happened. What does the word forsake mean here? Well, we know it can't be the first time he forsook Egypt because he had just, he had just killed the Egyptian. When he found out others knew what he did, he ran for fear of his life. He wasn't talking, dealing with Pharaoh at all. And this one says he's dealing with Pharaoh. So the first physical forsaking of Egypt, uh, this doesn't apply because he didn't deal with Pharaoh at all. Or it can't be the time that he leads the children of Israel out of Egypt when he was 80 years old because they left in haste. And there he stood toe to toe to Pharaoh. And he wasn't afraid of Pharaoh at all. He stood in the strength and the power of God. And so when is this forsaking? What is this exactly? When did this happen? Now remember, whenever we have a question of the Bible and the text, we always have to remember the context. And the context includes what comes before and after what we're asking, but it also includes when this was written and who it was written to. What was the intention of God 
through the Holy Spirit, in the human author, what did he want the Hebrew believers to understand about Moses' faith? What was he trying to share with them? What was he trying to emphasize? And when you interpret the Bible, there are not two interpretations. There are not five interpretations. There's only one intended purpose. And now you might have an interpretation. I might have interpretation, but we could both be wrong because God's interpretation could be totally different than ours. So what we're seeking is, what did God mean when he wrote it to the people that received it? So the Hebrew believers living in the first century, dealing with all the warfare and difficulty of losing everything they've ever known for the sake of Jesus Christ. That was the choice they made. They chose to receive Messiah, the fulfillment of all their promises, which meant they lost their worship environment, their community. To you, it would be like you lost your church. They lost their family because their family turned on them and said to them, you know, you're not even, you're not family to me. Look, at you got hooked up with those guys. That's not the truth. And because you're not following the truth, we want nothing to do. And because of that, they also lost their social status. In many places, they lost their source of employment. They were unable, they were ostracized. Some would even say they were excommunicated. And they're tempted to go backwards. They're tempted to go back. They're like, I'm weighing it in the balances. And what the Holy Spirit's saying is when you remember Moses, remember that he made an internal choice before he ever made an external choice. He chose to forsake Egypt in his heart long before he left Egypt physically. And that's what I believe he's saying here. Listen, church, you need to make a choice internally before you ever make the external choices. So many times, so much energy and effort is wasted on trying to change the outside of a person. But until you change the inside of the person, all the outward changes are temporary and really irrelevant. Now, I think being a good person and making good choices is a wonderful thing. I'm not minimizing that at all. But the Bible says, unless a man is born again, he will not see the kingdom of heaven. It is an inside job. If you keep running to this choice and that choice and this choice and that choice and trying to tackle, tackle down all the problems in your life without first making an inward choice, you're going to be a very frustrated person. The forsaking has to happen inside. You need to learn to disregard. You know, we've been saying this, and I'm saying, I'm repeating it over and over again. Hey, Egypt can't have my kids. Egypt can't have your kids. We just can't have that. Egypt cannot have our kids. But can I say this? Egypt can't have our church either. We need to be in this world, but not of this world. And Egypt can't have you. Egypt can't take you, can't captivate you. And how does that happen? You've got to make a choice. It's an internal choice. It's not a pastor from the pulpit. It's the Holy Spirit inside of you, empowering you. You're resisting the passing pleasures of sin, church, by faith. How do you choose affliction? By faith. How do you refuse to be the heir of riches? By faith. How do you esteem the riches of Christ more than all the money in the world? By faith. How do you choose? And again, you might be new here. You go, what are you talking about? Egypt. Egypt's not around the world. No. Egypt in the Bible is a picture and a type of our culture, of the world that we live in, the pressure of this culture. The Bible says that we have a threefold enemy. We wrestle against the flesh. That's our old sinful habits. 
we wrestle against the world and the devil. And if you don't make a choice to forsake Egypt in your heart, then you're always going to have a little bit of Egypt in you. And a little bit of Egypt is never satisfied. And you've got to make the internal choice. Three times Moses forsakes Egypt. He goes to Midian for 40 years. He leads the nation out. But then there's that primary forsaking. It's the one that all of us must make. You see, the other two can't happen without the internal primary decision to follow God and forsake all others. It started somewhere along the way in verse 24 where he said, you know what, I don't, I don't want to be the next Pharaoh. I don't want to be Pharaoh's daughter's son. I don't want the money, the fame, the riches. I want God and his promises for my life. That's my choice, and I'm standing by it. That's my choice. See, God is looking for a church that can make the same decision. It says, by faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing man. He didn't fear the wrath of the king. The only thing the king could have over him was death. And he knew long before Jesus taught it that death will not stop the believer. And death does not stop the church because there's the resurrection that's promised to every true believer. And he decided that I'm not going to fear man. I'm going to fear God. And he endured. Circle that word endured. It's not the familiar word that we're used to. When we think of endurance, perseverance, we think of that Greek word hupomone. And that's the word that you bear up under the weight or the load of a situation or a person, a hard thing. That's not the word here. This word here is different. And this is where the English translations sometimes fail us because there's only one English word that tries to cover so many things. And here, there's a nuance of this Greek word that doesn't speak of bearing up under a load, but rather this word literally means to stay strong, to be firm, steadfast, and I like this, to hold out. The word means to hold out. Like all that came against Moses, all that he faced, all the temptations. And it's interesting, isn't it? You know this to be true. When you resist a temptation, there are 10 others knocking at your door. And you're kind of thinking, man, I'm so strong. Oh man, I got through that. And then there's another knock on the door and another knock and the phone rings and there's temptation, temptation, the onslaught of the enemy where you truly do need to put up that shield of faith. You've got to put on the helmet of salvation to protect yourself, having the gospels on your feet, the belt of truth, having the body armor of faith, that of righteousness upon you, knowing that the onslaught of the enemy is never-ending. And Moses, he endured. He stayed put. That's the word of God to you today. You've got to stay put. You've got to hold your space. Hold firm, church. Don't move to the left or to the right. And if you hold firm long enough, Jesus called it this. He, he used the word abide. He said, abide in me and I in you. And the idea behind the word abide is very similar. Stay put. Stay close. If you and I have relationship, Jesus says, you in me and I in you, great things will come from your life. Great things. And Moses stands as an example to us of something that Jesus said was counting the cost. Have you ever heard that phrase before? Turn over to Luke 14 with me. Luke chapter 14, counting the cost. In embracing Jesus, see, the Hebrew believers were being asked to step away from a system and a familiar routine to follow a carpenter from Galilee 
who was murdered on a cross. Foolishness to the world. They were asked to go from faith in God, that they were asked to have faith in God from coming from a system where they followed a system of religion. They're exhorted to follow God by faith instead of a system is really what's happening and at a great personal cost. And Jesus taught us to count the cost. Moses learned how to count the cost before Jesus ever taught it, but the Hebrew believers in you and me, we need to count the cost. And this is a continual thing. You know, whenever someone joins the team here on staff, I have a personal interview with them. I'm the last one to interview them. And one of the questions I will ask them, I'll look at them right in the eye and I say, have you ever heard of the phrase counting the cost? And most everyone says yes. And then when they do, I say, have you counted the cost? Because coming to work at a church, serving on staff at a church, being a volunteer is not like the world in any way. There is a spiritual dynamic that has to do with coming on a, on a team here that will be nothing you've ever experienced before. The spiritual warfare and battle will be like nothing you've ever experienced before. And have you really considered the sacrifice? And have you really considered the investment of time? Have you really considered that you are answering the call of God? You're not taking a job. Even though there might be a salary involved, this is not a job. There are other jobs out there that probably will make far more money, but have you counted the cost of the calling of God upon your life? But listen, friend, that's not just... That's not just for someone sitting across the desk from me. It's for you and me too. I'm asking you today, have you counted the cost of what God has called you to? Have you thought ahead? I remember years ago, there was a new principle that was added to us in the corporate world. We'd have these guys come in and train us on management and leadership, and they'd be so excited. We found something new. We found something new. One of the things they found new was, I want you to learn as a manager how to think with the end in mind. And they felt like, oh, we just made this up. No, no, Jesus taught it thousands of years earlier. Moses lived it before Jesus. God invented that principle. <laughs> and when you think at the end of mind, this is what you're doing. You're counting the cost. Have you counted the cost? Listen to what Jesus says. Turn with me, Luke chapter 14 to verse 25. This is something we need to visit continually. Verse 25, great multitudes went with Jesus. And he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. First thing I want you to notice is that Jesus says twice, you cannot be my disciple. I know in an easy believism of the church today at large, it makes it sound like it's so super easy, anybody can get in, don't worry about it, nothing's required of you, just come to church and follow Jesus. It's easy, easy, easy street from now on. They're not telling you the truth. Jesus isn't interested in making it easier for you. He's wanting you to know this will not be easy. And you go, Ed, well, I don't know if I want to be a disciple. That's a really good question to ask. It's not easy. If you don't do this, you cannot. If you don't do this, you cannot. And then he talks about this hatred of people close to you, including hatred of yourself. Now understand here, this is, as he includes, him, as, as he includes us in that list, he's not speaking about the sinful, nasty hatred that destroys a person. That's not what he's speaking about. This is a section of priorities. He says, you better understand that when you follow me, your priorities change. 
and you have that great familial love, you'll continue to have it. You'll love those that are closest to you. You'll love them the most in your life. But you know that familial love needs to come second to your love for me. You want to be my disciple? I come first, Jesus says. Not the church, not the pastor, not some system of religion, none of those things. Jesus doesn't include that. He says, you want to follow me? You, won't, you can't be my disciple unless you get your priorities in order. Have you counted the cost? Notice what he says. He illustrates it now. Pick up with me in verse 28. He says, okay, guys, which of you intending to build a tower doesn't sit down first and mark those words? Which one of you are going to do a building and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it? Lest after he's laid the foundation and is not able to finish it, all who see it begin to mock him. You see, being a disciple of Jesus Christ has everything to do with the right priorities with him and everyone around you. He says, people are watching you, just like the guy that's building. It made me remember this building when we started this. When I sat down to count the cost, I almost lost my mind. I mean, this was the most stressful time, one of the most stressful times in all of my time serving Jesus. It, I just count the cost. I mean, I, I don't even want to talk about the cost. I don't even want to think about the cost. I just, and, and I was overwhelmed. And, and, and a couple of times, they're very fearful. You know, when the price of steel and concrete shot through the roof right in the middle of building this, we're like, oh no, what are we going to do? We counted the cost a couple, you know, a year ago. And now it's something, and I'm like, oh, but you've got to think ahead because we don't want this. I am so grateful that you're sitting here today worshiping Jesus Christ, where it's going out online in a radio station comes into this building and it's not half built. Aren't you happy about that? That it's just not a bunch of concrete and it's like, what happened there? Uh, you know, those guys, they thought they were going to build a building, but they didn't count the cost and they lost everything. And that's a testimony to Jesus. Well, what was that building going to be? Uh, it was going to be a church. It was going to be a what? A church. A what? Oh yeah, it was going to be a church. There was a group of people that were worshiping God and were excited to put down some roots and let, let that property be, but you know, they didn't count the cost. They didn't follow through and they lost everything. He says, look, you're going to follow Jesus. You got to sit down and consider the price that it requires to follow him. There is a price involved. And if you don't consider the price, people are watching you and will mock you and make fun of you for not following through. Notice what he says. He says, the conclusion in verse 30, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going to make war against another king doesn't sit down first to consider whether he's able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? Or else will the other still is a great way off? He sends a delegation and asks conditions of peace. And here's his conclusion. So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he cannot be my disciple. Before Jesus ever taught this, the Bible says Moses lived it. By faith, he forsook. Jesus later will say, if whoever of you does not forsake all that he has, it is an internal decision that leads to external decisions. That's the order. And church, I'm asking you to count the cost because you don't know what a day will bring. You don't know what difficulties await us. Of course, as a corporate, you know, larger group of church, we're all facing the same crisis together. Nobody could have predicted that. 
Nobody could have predicted what the situation that we're in today. However, we can be prepared and ready for it by the internal decision. No, I chose to forsake Egypt a long time ago. I don't need Egypt to validate me. I don't need Egypt to validate the church. I don't need Egypt's permission. I follow God. I'm not afraid of the wrath of the king. I'm not afraid of what might come. I'm going to walk confidently by faith because I forsook Egypt a long time ago. And that's the choice you have to make. I forsook all that there was a long time ago. I repented of my sins and chose to follow Jesus. That's where Moses is. He does it by faith. Come back to Hebrews with me. Notice it says in verse 28, by faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood, lest he who destroyed the firstborn should touch him. Turn over to Exodus chapter 12 now, because this is where this next step in the life of Moses is Passover. Before Moses leads the children out of Egypt, this nation, remember they came in, just 70 ragtag guys come in when the, during the famine when Joseph was there. You guys remember that? He, he was there, and, and they come in, and he saves them to get the land of Goshen. They multiply, and they grow so quickly, so fast, that the 70 people become two and a half million. And a pharaoh rises up that didn't know anything about Joseph and enslaves those people, and they begin to build the cities of Egypt. And that's their current condition here in Exodus chapter 12. They're slaves. Everything they had has been taken from them. Their identity is slaves. And yet they know a God. And God is about to deliver them. In verse 1 it says, Now the Lord spoke, this is Exodus 12, The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Speak, all to the con- speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth day of this month, every man shall take for himself a lamb, according to the house of his father, a lamb for a household. And if the household's too small for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next to his house take it, according to the number of the persons. According to each man's need, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. Verse 6. Now you should keep it until the 14th day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. They shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorsteps, two doorposts, and on the lintel of the houses where they eat. And they shall eat the flesh on that night, roasted in fire with unleavened bread and with bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat it raw, nor boil with, with, all, with water, but roast it in fire, its head and its legs and its entrails. You shall let none of it remain until morning, and what remains of it until morning you shall burn with fire. And thus you shall eat it with a belt on your waist, sandals on your feet, staff in your hand, so you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, And against all the gods, little g of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. Now the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, note that, when I see the blood, I'll pass over you. And the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So this day shall be to you a memorial, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You shall keep it as a feast by an everlasting 
ordinance. So here Moses, by faith, sprinkles the blood and institutes the Passover. This group, 70 growing into two and a half million, this is the beginning of a nation. God has gathered a people, but now he's birthing a nation. And he's bringing them together through this memorial feast, the Passover. And by the way, we've gone into great depth in this in our Bible studies verse by verse through Exodus. So if this is what, something that interests you, go back to the app or to the website, pull up these studies and listen to them. We went in depth when we studied through Exodus. For, but for our time today, understand that the Passover is the clearest picture of the type of Jesus Christ and the cross in all the Bible. That this is prefiguring the coming of Messiah. So much so, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 that Christ is our Passover. Peter would say in 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 19 that the precious blood of Christ, he is a lamb without blemish, without spot. John the Baptist would say, behold the lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. You see, Israel's life was changed by a lamb. The very life and death hung in the balance with this lamb. And today your life can be changed by a lamb. Your life. The lamb of God who takes away the sins of your life if you would come to him today. Notice they were to put the blood of the lamb on the doorposts outside the door. They were to give the vertical and the horizontal. The vertical and the horizontal with the blood would paint the picture of a what? A cross. The blood of the lamb would picture a cross on the home, on the dwelling. And the Bible says that when God saw the blood, they would be spared. That's encouraging to me. It's almost like God saying, in your life today, in this room, through technology, online, on the radio, God's like God saying to you right now, I'm looking for the blood in your life. Where is the blood of Jesus in your life? Because if I see the blood of Jesus in your life, I will spare you. I will save you. I will rescue you. I will pass over. My, if I see the blood in your life, God's saying, I will pass over. My judgment will pass over you. You will not experience judgment because the blood of Jesus Christ reminds us that he himself took the judgment of your sin and mine upon himself. So encouraging. And this was in preparation. They were supposed to do it with their sandals and be ready because at any time they could leave. Anytime they need to, to take a lightness, a, a light touch on this world. The lamb offered was without blemish. It's unfortunate that there's not a lot of talk about blood in churches today. It's like you, in, some, in some circles, it sounds like, man, salvation is so easy, doesn't require anything, and what about the blood? People are afraid to talk about the blood, but don't be afraid to talk about the blood because it's the blood of Jesus Christ that cleanses you of all your sins. There is no other way. There's no other way for you to be made right with God, none whatsoever. Now for you as a believer today, I want to draw out something that will help you in your walk with the Lord, your daily relationship with Him. The key to their being spared was not them feeling safe. God didn't say, once you come to a place where you feel safe, I'll pass over. It, it wasn't when they felt saved or protected. It wasn't their feelings that would give them a sense of, of strength and ability. It wasn't that. It wasn't, it wasn't, well, when you feel safe, it's good. No, it was their faith. 
And we know we walk by faith and not by sight. We understand that. But even back here, before these principles and doctrines were laid out, God was already laying. It's one God throughout all the scriptures giving one message. And the message here is, listen, when you feel, because I know some of you don't feel close to God right now, and you're thinking, well, I don't feel close to God, therefore I'm not close to God. No, it's actually not your feelings at all. What God is looking for is the blood applied to your life. Is the blood applied to your life. Well, you know what? I just, my week was really horrible. My attitude was really nasty, and I just don't feel saved. Well, praise God that God's not looking at your feelings. He's looking for the blood. Have you applied the blood in your life? Have you applied the blood of Jesus Christ and appropriated by faith that forgiveness? So let's go into the home for a minute. Like, let's just think of what the home might have been like for the dad and his kids that was obeying God. So dad hears the word and he obeys and he takes the blood of the animal and he goes out and he marks his house vertically, horizontally, and he comes in and as the plague is passing through and, and the wails and the screams are happening in the city, and it's dark and it's difficult. Those inside the homes, well, they're all imperfect sinners, just like you and me in our homes. None of our homes are filled with perfect people. We fail, we fail regularly, we sin continually. They're all in the home imperfect. They failed God, they failed each other, but how will they escape the judgment? It's the blood. Can you imagine that night? Can you imagine that being your home? Can you imagine telling the kids as they're hearing everything, what's going on, Dad? What's ha- I know you told me, but why are they screaming? And what's happening over there? And it's a very scary time. And the kids are concerned. And so what? One of your kids look up and go, Dad, did you do it right? You're firstborn. Dad, did you do it right? Are you sure you did it right? Go outside and check, Dad. Make sure you did it right. And Dad says, no, no, son. I did it right. Well, how do you know, Dad? How do you know you did it right? And Dad says, well, we believe God. I did what God told me to do. Yeah, but how do you know? Well, I did what God told me to do. But are you sure? I did what God told me to do. God said this, and God said this, and were you there? Yes, and were you there? Yes, and were you there? Yes, and so trust me, son, we believe God. Oh, how do you know? We believe God. How many times moms, dads, aunts, uncles, how many times have you found yourself comforting and encouraging your kids by saying, we believe God. This is what the Bible says. Yeah, but I don't understand. I know, but this is what the Bible says. But I'm not sure. I know, but this is what the Bible says. Isn't that a much more powerful way to lead your home? This is what the Bible says, son. This is what the Bible says, daughter. Yeah, but my friend said, yeah, I know what your friend said, but we trust God. We believe in his promises. Remember Abraham? Remember Isaac? Remember Jacob, remember Noah, and you, why do we teach kids the Bible stories so that they can become the foundation of their life? They're not just stories. They are the part of the grand epic of God's will on the earth today. Some of you are doubting right now and you're fearful, maybe even upset and mad and angry. Some of you are grieving and hurting and you go, I don't know and I don't feel like it. I don't know. You pastor, tell me. I don't get it. I'm not sure. Did I do it right? And I say to you, God keeps his promises. This is what God said. We're going to do what God said. And I encourage you to do what God said. When he said he sees the blood and he'll pass over you, it's true. He will pass over the blood of the lamb 
your kids, your family, your coworkers, when they ask you about heaven and they ask you about hell, you've got to answer them with the word of God. There's just no other way around it. We need to know the word so that we can share the word. You need to know God's promises to you, learning how to walk by faith. I know we're living in scary, unusual, unprecedented times. It's so discouraging in some ways that it's bringing out the worst in the church. A church that's being mocked and made fun of because of believers' responses. Aren't we the salt and the light on the earth? Aren't we the ones with great hope? Aren't we the ones preaching the gospel that says this world is not your home? Egypt can't have my kids. Egypt can't have my home. Egypt can't drive it. Egypt can't, we can't fear. Like, aren't we the ones walking with hope? And then when we're tested on it, some of the worst things are being posted. Some of the worst things are being said. For what purpose? Jesus said, count the cost, church. It's not going to be easy forever. Count the cost, church. It's going to require a different priority system. It's going to require us to walk in the spirit of dependence and surrender, not in the strength of our flesh. It's going to require us not to take things in our own hands and try to figure things out and try to find a way. No, it's going to require us to answer with the powerful, living Word of God. The Word of God speaks of a better city, church. One without pain and sorrow and suffering. One that we're reunited with our loved ones, resurrected in our new bodies. New bodies. You get a new body. Don't you want a new body? Don't you want to see your loved ones in heaven? Don't you want to gather? Don't you want all the tears wiped away? Aren't you sick and tired of crying? Aren't you sick and tired of hurting? Aren't you sick and tired of Egypt, church? Has the burden of Egypt been too much? Lay it aside. Some of you have placed your hope in Egypt and you're disappointed as you should be because Egypt can't help you. Every four years, people put their hope in a political cycle. Haven't you learned by now your hope is not in Egypt? Every few years, you know, you put your hope in a raise. I'm going to get a raise and then I'll have it and then it doesn't come through and then you're disappointed because you put your hope in Egypt. I remember very clearly when I did that, I had my boss come into my office years ago and say, Ed, I just wanted you to be one of the first to know that I'm leaving and you get my job. You know, one of my first responses is, I've always wanted your job. And I was very happy. You know, I didn't really want his job. You know what I wanted? His paycheck. Because that opened, that would have opened up so many things for me and my little family in California finally buy a house, finally get ahead, finally get out of debt. All these things. A couple weeks later, same boss comes into my office and says, oh, Ed, guess what? I'm not leaving. You're not getting my job. I said, what? Bro, I've already spent your money, man. So, like, no way. But see, God had something far greater. I put my hope in Egypt, but God wanted, God wanted to move me on. I would have never known that. That whole little scenario, which is much bigger, is how I got here to Aurora. By my boss coming in and going, taking taking the rug right out from under me. Because I put my hope in Egypt. Friend, I know you're tired of Egypt. All the things that this world has promised and hasn't delivered. All the hopes and dreams. You'll never have contentment and satisfaction until you place your hope in God. 
Can I ask you to turn over to Matthew chapter 11? And the worship team, can you come back up, please? Matthew chapter 11. I want to give you an invitation. But that invitation comes from Jesus himself. And this is a real invitation. Of course, you guys on the radio right now or online, it's going to be a different way for you to respond. But I want you to respond as well. I really do. I want you to acknowledge that this is where you are, that the heaviness of this world, the heaviness of circumstances, the heaviness of pain, the heaviness of sin, the heaviness of, of, and the weight of living in a fallen world has burdened you beyond measure. But you guys in the room, you have the privilege of responding to this in person right now. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to read this and I'm going to invite you to come up here to the altar, to the stage. Of course, you getting up and coming up here, you're acknowledging that you're not going to have six feet, right? You're not going to, it's going to be a little crowded here. So you're just saying, I don't care if it's crowded or not. I want to physically respond. And that's cool. So from now on, as we move forward, you're going to have altar calls here and you're going to come up and anybody's welcome to come. And I want you to notice in verse 28, the cry of Jesus. The cry of Jesus as he recognizes the pain and hurt in this room, the tiredness and the weariness. Notice what he says. Some of you have already uh, memorized this, but he says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. That's the invitation, come to me. Your true rest is not found in religion. It's not found in a person in a church, in a pastor, in a movement. Your true rest is found in Christ. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle. Can't we use a lot of gentleness? <laughs> Lord, we pray for more gentleness. I'm gentle and lowly in heart, taking the place of preference, dying to ourselves. Jesus gives us the example. He says, when you do that, uh, you'll find rest for your souls. See, it's not outward, is it? It's inward. It's that choice inside. God wants to give you the, 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 the peace and the comfort in your soul. He says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And so Jesus is inviting you to shed the burden. We're going to learn in a few weeks in, Rome, in, in Hebrews how we're to lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily traps us. This is going to be a common theme as you learn to walk by faith. And as the world gets more difficult and more challenging, as God is training us for eternity. So church, let's stand together. And as you're standing, if you want to respond to the invitation, come unto me, just come up to the stage here. The pastors will follow you up and they'll pray with you. But you've got to make the first step. You know, you, it's your step. And it's not just for salvation. I mean, there's some of you that need to get saved, so respond to that. But this is more than salvation. And I'm not asking rededication. I'm just saying, look, you're heavy, you're tired, you're burdened, you're beat up, you're, you're down and out, you're just overwhelmed. Then let this be like a, a time where you're just acknowledging, like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to respond. I'm going to, that verse forever, I, I'm going to respond to it. Because our life with Jesus is not intended to be a burden. It's not. And then you make it a burden and it becomes so hard for you. So just wherever you are, just come on up and come on up here to the front and uh, the pastors will follow you up. And we're going to just come up during the song and the pastors will take care of it from there, okay? So let's sing this unto him. And uh, you have the freedom. Just come on up and allow the Holy Spirit to minister to you. And Father, we, uh, we pray for your 
spirit to fall upon us, God, that you would meet the needs of our church community so that we might meet the needs of our community around the church. Forgive us, Lord, and strengthen us. Even as we're singing, our, all our hope is in you. We can't always say that. I know my, all my hope is not always in you. So I sing that song by faith. I want it to happen in my life. And so I pray that into our church's life. May you have your way as you remove the burdens and you remove the guilt and you remove the shame. And you even, we don't even have to wait for heaven because you wipe away tears even now. They come into your bottle and they're saved and treasured in some way. It's really, really an interesting thing to think about, but you care and love us. So may you pour out your spirit upon us in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you guys. We pray that you've been encouraged by this Bible study delivered live from the sanctuary of Calvary Aurora. For prayer or a copy of this study, call us at 877-30-GRACE. That's 877-304-7223. Or visit us online at calvaryaurora.org. Be blessed as you worship Jesus this week.